0: In 1885, an American painter by the name of Albert Ryder began a work of art, a oil-on-canvas painting that would take around the next 10 years to complete. It was multi-layered, which was his style. The way he would paint is he would um, put paint, and then he would paint another layer, and another layer, and another layer. And sometimes he'd, he'd paint while one layer was still wet to create a density to his paintings. And among All of his paintings, this is perhaps one of his most famous. It took him 10 years to complete, and it is simply entitled Jonah. It's his reflection on the story of Jonah that we are working our way through over a few weeks together in this church at the moment. And this is what it looks like. The the immediate thing you notice is how dark and intense it is, The, the swirling sea um, that 's the setting for this particular part of the book of Jonah and the dark colors and the way it all works, and you may not notice immediately, but there 's some key things going on in the middle of the of the painting, so right in the middle there in a, in a kind of darker patch, let me zoom in on it for you is the boat that 's the ship that the sailors were on, and what that Jonah was on um, that they ended up throwing off and the way that Ryder has painted it there 's no mast or anything like that, so that 's snapped off and the the boat's almost slightly skewed, if you can see that in the water, as though it's, it's almost at breaking point. It's almost about to fall apart under the, the huge travail of this massive storm uh, that they're in. That's the boat in the middle there. And then in the foreground, in front of the boat, you can, might be able to see there the figure of Jonah in the water, in the waves. So, zeroing in, there he is. Um, he, he's in big trouble. He's been thrown overboard, and the water, you know, his, his head and nose, basically, is above the water in his hands, and you almost get the sense that he's about to go under. As the waves are on him, he's about to, to sink the way that Ryder has painted this. And then off to the very side on your right is lurking this menacing dark figure of this great fish. So let me, let me bring the fish up. There it is. So dark and and huge, massive, big bulging eyes, if you can see those, it's quite hard, it's quite dark, but bulging eyes, and those bulging eyes are zeroing right in on the figure of Jonah down in front of him. The fish is about to swoop and swallow him whole. But the bit I love most about it is the top of the painting, because above it all, in the light, which is probably the bit you can see okay, is this figure the figure of God, over the entire scene, in control of everything, surrounded by light, and in one hand is an orb, which either would symbolise the world in which he is in control over, or perhaps it's an orb that a king would hold to show their kingly power. But either way, it shows the sovereignty of God with his hand, other hand raised as though he is directing and in charge of everything that is happening in this uh, amazing portrait. And the thing I love about this picture, I've, I've been looking at some different artwork about the story of Jonah, and I, I love this particular one, A, because it's dark and, and brooding, but it captures, I think, beautifully the exact moment that we are in in, this, in the story of Jonah. We looked last week at, this, at the, the chapter 1 of the book of Jonah in the Old Testament, a great storm that God had hurled on the water because Jonah, his prophet, had run away from him, and God was pursuing him graciously and relentlessly, and God hurled the storm, and it caught this boat, and and they tried everything, and in the end, they had to throw Jonah overboard as the only way to calm the waters because Jonah wouldn't simply confess uh, his rebellion against God and repent of that. And so at this moment, where we begin now, Jonah is in the water, just as he is in writer's painting, about to sink and drown when this massive fish swoops. So I want to look at this with you. Um, so this morning, we're in Jonah chapter 2. Um, so I'd like you to turn to that if you've got a Bible with you, either a paper Bible or a phone app or the journal, if you've got um, the journal there. And that's whether you're here at Botany or watching this in Hastings as well. Hi to you guys or are on the internet. It's really helpful to have the text actually in front of you today. And we're going to look in Jonah 2. Actually, we're going to start in the very last verse in, in our Bibles of chapter 1. Um, chapter 1, verse 17 should actually be part of chapter 2. Um, and that's where we're going to begin today and look at this. what happens with this great fish. This is the part of the story that's probably best known. Um, if you were to ask someone who doesn't normally come to church and doesn't know a Bible very well, do you know anything about Jonah, they'd probably be able to say, yeah, Jonah and the whale. Um, it's actually not called a whale in the text. It's just called a great fish. But over time, different people started drawing different pictures and painting pictures of this gigantic-looking sperm whale or something that, that swallowed Jonah. And then, of course, Disney made the Pinocchio movie, which kind of added to... Uh, even more of this legend. It's not necessarily a whale at all, it's simply a great fish. But that's almost become the focus point for a lot of people. And so many uh, liberal scholars and and atheists have raised the question, well, how can you even believe this story? It's, It's presented in the Bible as though it's history. This is about a real person named Jonah going to a real city named Nineveh, and yet in the middle of it, there's this 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 weird bit about this guy surviving in the stomach of a great fish for three days and three nights, and a lot of liberal scholars pour scorn on this story and say it can't be true, that would never happen. Um, my response to that is if you believe that God, there is a God who created the world, then this is a really minor miracle. I mean, seriously, this is not on the tough miracle list to believe, in my opinion, you know, uh, the God who is spoke and the universe came into being. That's a, that's a big miracle. You know, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead when he'd been dead for four days. That's a big miracle. Jonah surviving in the stomach of a, of a great fish. I mean, that's a miracle. That's not normal. But it's not a biggie to my mind at all. So I don't know why people stumble over it, to be honest. Anyway, the point of the story is not actually the fish. I came across this quote from an old uh, commentator about the, writing about the Bible before I was even born, Thomas Carlyle, but he said, I was so obsessed with what was going on inside the whale that I missed seeing the drama inside of Jonah. And I think he's bang on. People have got so obsessed with how did this work and what kind of fish was it and how on earth could Jonah survive that they zero in on that. In fact, more ink has been spilled writing about the fish than about the rest of the book. But people have missed the rest of the story because actually the fish is an incidental character in the story. It's not actually about the fish at all. It's about Jonah and what is going on with him. So if you've got your Bible, let's just have a look at the way this story begins. So we're in Jonah 2, but we're starting back in verse 17, which should really be part of Jonah 2 anyway. So Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Now the Lord, which is God's name in the Old Testament in Hebrew, it's called Yahweh. Now Yahweh provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, and from inside the fish... Jonah prayed to Yahweh, his God. He said, and then there's the prayer, which goes for the next nine verses, and then look at verse 10 at the end, and Yahweh commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. The first thing we should notice about the way the story is written is it's basically the main focus of chapter 2 is a prayer. It begins with a, a little narrative sentence about Yahweh providing a fish that swallowed Jonah, And then at the end, Yahweh commands the fish and it vomits Jonah back onto dry land, which I'm sure wasn't great. But most of the story is about the prayer of Jonah. And ironically, this is the part of Jonah that most people go skipping over. We're more interested in the story than we are in the prayer. And so often what happens is is people go uh, reading through the story of Jonah, concentrating on the narrative piece and the plot and the storyline. And they don't really take in what it is that Jonah is praying. And because of that, most people misunderstand entirely what's going on in this prayer. So my hope is that if you've picked up the challenge that I gave at the start of this a couple of weeks ago to actually read and study Jonah for yourself, my hope is that you've read this prayer carefully and begun to realise this is different to what we normally think. See, Jonah's prayer is not a cry for deliverance. I'm guessing that half the books I have read on Jonah, and I've listened to a few sermons as well, and I'm guessing half the sermons that I've heard on Jonah, say something like this, this is Jonah's desperate cry from the belly of the fish for God to save him. And that would be wrong. This is not Jonah's cry from the belly of the fish for God to save him. This is not a prayer for deliverance. This is not Jonah praying, God, would you deliver me, please? What this is, is a response to God's deliverance. This is Jonah saying, thank you to God that he's already been delivered. See, and we misread the story when we think the fish is God's judgment on Jonah. It isn't. The fish is God's salvation of Jonah. The fish has saved Jonah. And Jonah doesn't pray, God, save me from this horrible fish. Jonah is praying, God, thank you for saving me from a horrible death by drowning. See, he's now safe in the fish. The fish isn't a bad place for Jonah to be. Well, it probably was pretty smelly and slightly acidic. But The fish is not God's judgment. The fish is his salvation. And so this prayer, this exquisite prayer that we're going to look at today, this is not Jonah going, Oh God, I hate this and it stinks, get me out of here. This is Jonah going, God, thank you, because I was drowning and you saved me. What this means is that technically this prayer is a thanksgiving psalm. In fact, it is very similar to many of the psalms of the Old Testament in the book of Psalms. In the book of Psalms, which were the songs of Israel, there are three kinds of main three categories. There are worship psalms that praise God for who he is. There are thanksgiving psalms that thank God for what he's done. And there are lament psalms that weep before God when life hasn't gone great. Those are the three main categories. Actually, the lament psalms is the biggest group of all. But one of these other key categories is thanksgiving psalms, which are psalms that a psalmist will pray to say, thank you, God, for saving me. And Jonah 2 is a thanksgiving psalm. This week at our staff meeting, I was um, leading a short devotion, as we sometimes do in our staff meetings, and I read to them the opening words of one of the thanksgiving psalms from the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 18, and it's got very similar language to Jonah chapter 2. This is the way Psalm 18 begins. It's really long, but I just read the opening verses of it. Psalm 18 says, I love you, Yahweh, my strength. Yahweh's my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. I call to Yahweh who's worthy of praise, and I've been saved from my enemies. See, a Thanksgiving psalm is a psalm where the psalmist, in this case it's King David, is thanking God because they were facing a really bad situation, facing a crisis, perhaps fearing for their life, and they say, God, you delivered me, you saved me, and so now I'm saying thank you. And so that's what Jonah 2 is doing as well. But look at the next few lines in this psalm: The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. If you have studied Jonah 2 this week, then this kind of language should ring a bell for you. Because it's very similar language that Jonah will use to describe the way he was almost drowning and almost died. In Jonah's case, he'll use this language literally. David's using it metaphorically to talk about how tough his life was. But it's the, it's the next verse that I think is really telling. David wrote, In my distress I called to Yahweh. I cried to my God for help. From his temple he heard my voice, my cry came before him into his ears. Let me leave that up there and let me read to you the opening part of Jonah's prayer in Jonah 2. Jonah 2 verse 2. In my distress, I call to Yahweh. He's just quoted Psalm 18. In fact, Jonah's psalm contains... Allusions or quotes to at least 10 different psalms in the book of Psalms. Jonah is weaving together a song or a prayer of thanks to God based on a lot of the other prayers and thanks in the, book of Jonah, uh, in the book of Psalms. And he's coming to God and he's saying, thank you for saving him. So this is not Jonah crying out to God for salvation. This is Jonah coming to God and saying, thank you for saving me. And Jonah was right to do that. If you think back to the story we've already looked at, Jonah's a prophet from God, and he's on the run. God told him, go preach in this wicked city of Nineveh. Basically, they were the Nazis of the ancient world. Jonah doesn't even talk to God. He doesn't even answer God. He just takes off, and he runs. He's disobeyed God. He's turned his back on God. He's run for his life. And God has pursued him in grace. But Jonah doesn't want anything to do with God until the point comes where he's been thrown overboard and he's sinking and he's drowning and he's cried out to God and God has sent a great fish to save him. And as Jonah sits in the belly of the fish, he realizes just how gracious God is. Because he didn't deserve to be saved. He turned his back on God. He basically gave God the middle finger and ran away, and he didn't deserve anything from God except his judgment, but God has still in his grace chosen to save him, and so Jonah's going, thank you, because I didn't deserve that, and that, I think, is really the big idea of this, um, this part of Jonah, this particular psalm that Jonah writes, that recipients of God's amazing grace should respond with overwhelming, overflowing gratitude, Because that's what Jonah does. I think this is the the point in the book where Jonah's at his best, actually. I think this time, in this part, Jonah's a really good example to us. Because he has come to realise as he sits in this fish for three days, or lies down, or however comfortable it was, I don't know. But as he's in that fish, in the belly of this great beast... He comes to realize he did not deserve to be saved and Yahweh heard his prayer and answered him and saved him and now he writes this amazing psalm to say, thank you, God. I can't believe what you've done for me. And I think it's a really good example to us of if we are recipients of God's amazing grace through Jesus today, then we should be people who are overflowing with gratitude to him. The way a Thanksgiving psalm would work is it had three main parts to it. There was an opening line, which is that line I just read, in my distress I called to Yahweh and he answered me. And then there's three main moves. There's what I call the before, which is basically there's a description of the crisis that the person was in, that the psalmist was in. There's a description using really vivid poetic language of the absolute mess that they were in. And then there's an after, which is the description of how God has saved them out of that mess. And then there's a therefore. And the therefore is a response. And normally it's a future response. It's a promise or a vow that God, I'm going to, in response to what you've done, I'm going to praise you, I'm going to make sacrifices to you, I'm going to worship you at the temple, something like that. So it's before. Here's the mess I was in. After, here's what God's done to save me. Therefore, I'm going to praise you. That's how it works. And that's exactly what we see in Jonah chapter 2. Jonah's going to remember the mess he was in, the crisis, because of his own rebellion against God. And then he's going to celebrate the way that God has saved him and heard his cry and and delivered him in his grace when he didn't deserve to be saved. And then he's going to make a vow to God that he is going to respond and say thank you to God. When he gets out of the fish, he's going to thank God for saving him. That's the way it's going to work. So let me walk through this beautiful psalm with you um, quite quickly today. So the before. So it begins with the way that Jonah um, recalls the trouble he was in because of his rebellion against God. So he does that in verse 2 down to the first half of verse 6. Now, listen to these words, and you can follow along if you've got the Bible open. And while we read it, I want to put this picture back up from Albert Albert Ryder, because I think it captures some of the language that Jonah uses here. Jonah 2, verse 2. In my distress, I called to Yahweh, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths. Into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me, and your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. It's an amazing poetic description of a guy who's drowning, isn't it? Some of the language in it is awesome. I've just noticed some of the phrases here uh, on the screen. He talks about being basically in the realm of the dead, like I was almost a complete goner, God. Um, that's how low, he says, I sunk. He talks about being uh, going into the depths, about the currents swirling around him, the waves and the breakers sweeping over him. And then it, it's as though he begins to sink down into the water and the engulfing waters threaten his very life and it's so seaweed is wrapping itself around his head as he slowly sinks to the, almost to the floor of the sea, to the, what he calls the roots of the mountains I sank. It's amazing and vivid language that he uses to, to describe this incredibly tough situation he's in. See, and it helps us realize that for Jonah at this moment, the worst place to be is not inside the fish. The worst place to be was out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, sinking and drowning. And that's the place where God saved him from. That's where he was saved. It's very similar language again, isn't it, to Psalm 18. And again, Psalm 18 is using that simil- that kind of um, talk about being entangled and the torrents of destruction overwhelming, but in, in david 's case david 's actually writing this psalm about when he was a young man on the run for his life from King Saul, who wanted to kill him. So David is using this language metaphorically. Jonah 's using it literally. Jonah was drowning, he was sinking to the bottom of the ocean. David uses similar language, but he's talking about how close he came to having his life snuffed out by Saul because he was a rival for his throne. But either way, what they're describing um, in in their Psalms of Thanksgiving is, is the crisis they found in themselves. This was what it was like for me before God stepped in. Jonah says, I was almost dead. I was a goner. But then God saved me. And that's what the next section is. The rest of verse 6 and verse 7 is his after. Here's where I was before, but then this is the after. Have a look. Midway through verse 6. Actually, let's read from the beginning of verse 6. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. What's the next word? But. See, again, when you slow down and and read the Bible carefully, that, that just screams out. But. You, Yahweh, my God, you brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Yahweh, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. This is Jonah coming to the realization that his life was was over, but then God stepped in. And thankfully for Jonah, Jonah, As we saw in chapter 1, when Jonah chose to run, that wasn't the last word, because we read in verse 4 of Jonah 1, then Yahweh chose to act, and now Jonah's very thankful that that's the kind of God he is. Because Jonah was about to drown, but Yahweh stepped in and saved him. And so in this little passage here, he, he celebrates what God has done in saving him. See, notice, by the way, verse 7. I remembered you, Yahweh, when my life was ebbing away. My prayer rose to you from your holy temple. The prayer we read in Jonah 2 is Jonah's second prayer. The first prayer he prayed was as he was drowning in the sea. And I think his prayer was something like, help. And Yahweh answered his prayer in his grace. And in response, he's written the second prayer, the psalm of thanksgiving. See, recipients of God's amazing grace should respond to what God has done with overwhelming, overflowing gratitude. And that's exactly what Jonah does here. I want to hit pause for a minute and leave Jonah for a moment and think about our lives. See, if you're a follower of Jesus if you have put your faith in him, then you're a recipient of God's amazing grace. And so am I. Because the Bible, especially into the New Testament, talks about the fact that all of us have run from God. All of us have turned our back on him. All, all of us have ignored the one who created us and made us for his glory and his pleasure and we've gone and pursued our own thing, followed our own agenda, said no to God multiple times and we are deserving too of his judgment because of that and yet he sent Jesus to live the life we couldn't live and to die and pay for our sins and rebellion and rise again to offer us new life and, and each of us, if we're followers of Jesus, we've said yes to that invitation, to that gift and we didn't deserve it. There was nothing we'd done to be worthy of that. Nothing that we had done that could earn God's love or his favour or, or, or anything from. Him. And he's given us new life for eternity through Jesus. Completely by his grace. Nothing we could do. And that means, I think, even more than Jonah as recipients of God's grace. Our lives should overflow with gratitude. And just like Jonah in the psalm, each of us, if we're followers of Jesus, have a before and after. Each of us have a, this is what my life was like before. And then grace stepped in and God saved me and now this is what it's like for me after. You find that especially in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul would write these words to one of his associates, his friends, Timothy. He said, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. The grace of our Lord was poured on me abundantly. So He said to Paul, what was your before, Paul? What words would you describe your before? And Paul would say, blasphemer, persecutor, a violent man. Paul would write to Um, a church in a little place called Ephesus in modern Turkey. And he reminded the people that as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You lived among the people of the world, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires. You were deserving of God's wrath. Before you came to faith in Jesus, that was us. That was our before. Before. Later on in the same chapter, he'll write to, to especially the Christians in Ephesus who were not Jewish, who were Gentiles. And he would say, because you were Gentiles, before you came to faith, you were separate and excluded and foreigners and without hope and without God. That's your before. See, all of us have a before. For Jonah, he might write words down like, I was dead. I was I was sinking. I was banished, I was in the pit. Paul, as we saw, would say, I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. The Ephesian people, based on what Paul wrote to them, would say, we were dead, and we were objects of God's wrath, and we were separate from him without hope. I would say, my before, I was self-righteous and arrogant, thinking I could measure up, and I could make myself acceptable to a holy God but I was a failure, because I could never do it. And to be honest, if I kept living that way, I would have been absolutely exhausted and without hope. So let me ask you, what's your before? Here's what I want to invite you to do. If you haven't got your journal open at the moment, I want to invite you to grab your journal. And I want to invite you to turn to the pages on this. And if you haven't got a journal, I might actually get someone, Neil, can you just grab on the table outside? There's a bunch of journals. If you haven't got a journal, I invite you to put your hand up when Neil gets back in the room. But here's what I want you to do. I just want you to write the word before on the page. And then I want to invite you as you look on your life before God saved you in his grace. What two or three or four words would you write down? What words would you use to describe your before and it may be that that if if you lived a pretty wild life before god saved you you've got lots to say about what a before looks like it might be that like me you were raised in a christian family and you trusted jesus at a pretty young age but i don't think it's very hard even in that situation to project what what your where would your life have gone what would your life have ended up looking like if if, if jesus hadn't come along And I just want you to take a couple of seconds and just think, what was your before? Just write down three or four words. This was my life. You may want to use some of the words from Ephesians or from Paul or from the metaphors that that Jonah and and David use. What was your before? What What would your words be? If you're a follower of Jesus, you don't have just a before. You have an after. You have a, this is what my life looks like now because of God's amazing grace that's been poured on, out to me through, through Jesus Christ. What would you write for your after? What's a few words to describe what salvation means for you now? For Paul, this is what he wrote a couple of verses later in 1 Timothy, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ would display his immense patience as an example to those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul would write heaps of other words to describe us after, but these are the ones I grabbed from 1 Timothy. Writing to those Ephesian believers, he said it's because of God's great love for us that God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead as by grace You've been saved. And then later on, for we are God's handiwork. We are his work of art. Later in that next section of Ephesians, he would write, in in one body, which is uh, the church, everyone reconciled together. He's reconciled both Jew and Gentile to God through the cross. He's put to death the hostility. He came and preached peace to those who are far away and and those who are near, and he's brought us access to the Father by one spirit. There's amazing words in that. What's your after? I think Jonah, based on the words he writes in the psalm, he would say, my after is, is I'm alive. He gave me life. He heard my prayer. He gave me hope that I would see his temple again. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy there that I received mercy. God displayed his patience to me. I was given eternal life. In Ephesians, they were told you were made alive. You were saved by His grace. You are now God's work of art. You've been reconciled to God and to each other. In my life, I would say my after that I was saved by grace. I didn't earn the relationship with God that I had, and I and I still can't. It's purely by His grace that I am accepted by Him and loved by Him. That's my after. What's yours? Again, I just want to invite you to just use your journal or use notes on your phone or whatever you want to do. But I just want you to think and just write down a few words. What is your before and what is your after in terms of what God has done in your life through Jesus? In his book called Just Walk Across the Room, Pastor Bill Hybels talks about the power of our stories. That if you've been saved by Jesus, you have a story, a before and an after in terms of what God has done for you. These are some of the examples that, that Hybels uses in, in that book. Just the power of the way that, that Jesus transforms our lives. From striving to grateful, from self-destructive to healthy, from guilty to liberated, despairing to, to hopeful and that's all of us. I've, um, I've actually asked two of our leaders today to come and share their stories, so I'm going to invite Robin and Susan, if they would come up and join me up here, and um, they're just going to share a little bit about their stories because this is something we actually want to start doing more in our church, that's sharing the story of what God has done in our lives. And so I've asked these guys to come and share their stories with us today, but I'm going to ask you to be willing to share yours as well. And so what I'm going to ask you to do this week, maybe this afternoon before you come to Splash, is I'm going to ask you to email Robin, who's in charge of our services, and just say, I'm open to sharing my story. Now, that might be up here like these brave people, or if this is far too freaky, we're actually happy to video. And if you'd be happy to just sit down and be videoed so we can show your story, we would love to hear your story. Because if you're his follower, you're a recipient of amazing grace. So, what I'd like you to do is just email Robin, his email's in the bulletin, and just say, oh, I'm willing to share. And if you want to go video, say, oh, I'll go video. And then just tell Robin, these are my before words and these are my afterwards. And seriously, I would love Robin, when he gets into the office and checks his email for the first time on Tuesday, <laughs> I would love him to have 50 or 100 emails, because you've got a story. So, what are your stories? So, so on, hand it to you first. Robin, tell us your before.
1: Um, so, yeah, brought up in a non-Christian home, um...
0: So, if this happens on video, then we can stop the video and restart.
1: Where do I start? Right. <clears throat> so, um, I was a kid that was kind of always looking for trouble. Um, I think it all started when, um, back in the UK, if, if you're from the UK, you'll remember, I think, called the 11. Plus. Um, where basically, when you finished primary school, um, you took an exam, and if you passed the exam, you kind of went to these really good schools, and if you failed the exam, you went to <laughs> not so good schools. So, I failed this exam when I was 11, and, um, and I got sent to these. Um... <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> it's good, this is good. Um, you know, I, got, I got sent to a pretty bad school, and so. Whereas my brother f- passed uh, this exam which went to a really good school. And so that's kind of where it all started for me. Um, and it started going downhill from there. So I, um, at a young age, got in some pretty, pretty bad stuff. Um, I got addicted to gambling. Um, and stole, feed that habit. Um, I was incredibly foul-mouthed I was a really angry child Um, and then I got the school record for wagging school for a month in a row which was (laughs) quite incredible Um, and got expelled from that school at 14 Um, and I got sent to a a monastery for two years (laughs) (laughs) believe it or not well, it was it was a school It was in a monastery. Okay, I just have to clarify that. All right? um, anyway, I got sent to this monastery, uh, and it was a school run by monks. Um, and um, that was the first time really I, I had some discipline in my life, because um, you couldn't do a thing out of out of lying really at this school. So, um, but at this school, there's a guy called Father Simon. Who? Um, wow, I don't know why I'm so emotional. It's incredible. It's um, Anyway, he showed, me, he showed me really the meaning of love, and that's the first time I saw um, love in action, although my parents, um, in my early years, um, and I didn't know it at that time, but they were so graceful and mm. so forgiving. Mm. Um, and then, um, then when I was about 15, um, I joined the Boys Brigade. A friend of mine was part of this organisation called the Boys Brigade, and they... Um, uh, Christian organisation, although I didn't know it when I joined it, um, so I'm not sure I would have joined it if I knew it was a Christian organisation. Um, but they were heavily involved in sports, which is what, which, which really attracted me. So I um, got involved with table tennis and tennis back then and, and uh, football and that type of stuff. And so loved it for the sports side of thing. But the, but the Boys' Gate was connected to a church um, called Tankton Evangelical Church in the UK. Um, and so as part of being in the Boys' Gate, you had to go to this church once a month and you kind of prayed it in these... These uniforms and stuff, so I had to do that to be part of boys. So, because I enjoyed the sports so much, I kind of grinned and bear it and went along to church once a month. And um, but gradually, um, over a period of two years, um, I'm going along to this church and ever so often just hearing um, about God um, and about grace and about love and about forgiveness. God started softening my heart. So, mm. And then when I was 17... I'm um, at a boys' gay camp. And the guy that led the camp used to read these books. Um, and he would tell these stories. And one was the cross and the switchblade. And one was Run, Baby, Run, which was... Um, mm. Mm. And um, books about these guys that were involved for some fairly hairy stuff, but how God changed them, and so yeah, sitting, sitting in camp, um, um, they were singing this song called um, "You Lay Aside Your Majesty," hmm. which Brad is going to read.
0: there's no chance I could say loved you you laid aside your majesty you gave up everything for me suffered at the hands of those you had created you took all my guilt and shame when you died and rose again and now today you reign and heaven and earth exalted I really want to worship you my lord you've won my heart and I'm yours forever and ever and I will love you you're the only one who died for me gave your life to set me free so I lift my voice to you in adoration mm.
1: yep yeah, and god god did an incredible work in my heart and um, that's where i get my heart to work.
0: So, I'll tell you b- a so b- before you hand the microphone over mm. what are your what are your before words
1: okay yeah i've so, asked them
0: what are their before words are to describe their sure. story
1: um so my four words would be searching um performance anger and grace
0: awesome susan what about your story the before
2: Okay, my story is um, I come from a Buddhist family, and um, and like any kid, I just follow what my family believes without any questioning. And um, apart from that, um, I come from a broken home where my family always quarrel over just one thing I really hate. and they always quarrel about finance, and and that is the thing I always. Hate going home. Actually, I would uh, when I was in school. I would skip classes, go home late, just in time to do my chores and you know um, get ready for dinner because that time my mother has to work. So that was uh, that was me. Now, even though I come from, uh, I attend a missionary schools, um, but I actually know little about uh, Jesus. And um, one thing I do attend the Christian meetings because I loved the singing. Hmm. So that's about me. And um, I have to tell turning point? Yep, yep. okay, the turning point um, in my life uh, is when one of my um, schoolmates she just passed away suddenly, and and I begin to question about. Is there actually life after death? And um, that gave me searching. And um, another school friend of mine invited me to a Bible study. And it's actually from the Bible study I begin to um, know who God is and uh, what he has done for me. And I realized that uh, there is a God who loves me Hmm. and And I don't have to prove anything, uh, like doing good works, to be accepted by him. And the only thing that uh, God promised that, he says that if he who hears my word and believes in him, I will not be condemned, but I have passed from death to life. Mm. And that gave me the um, courage and confidence that I can face death if whatever circumstances happen because Jesus has overcome death and he is the victory. And in him, I have peace and I am loved. So the four words or few words before, my accept, uh, before I believe in Jesus is I, I do good works to be accepted and I'm a rebellious child and I fear of death. And I'm searching.
0: That's cool. Why don't you keep the mic? Why don't you tell us the after? What's what's been different because of what Jesus has done for you?
2: Now, after I um, believed in Jesus, well, things didn't happen overnight in my family. But God changed me. He began to... um, Help me. I mean, I've, I received his love, and he helped me to love my family, my mom and dad, my sister. And, uh, and I'm free from the bondage of fear, fear that grips me, fear of death, fear of doing good things. And I am accepted, and I'm loved. I'm accepted because I don't have to prove that by doing good works, I'm accepted by God. And the most important thing is I have a good friend. Jesus is my good friend. Hmm. And he loves me just as who I am.
0: That's so cool. What are your afterwards?
2: <laughs> my afterwards is um, I'm thankful that he saved me just as I am. That's grace. And I'm loved, I'm forgiven.
0: And
1: I'm accepted. That's so cool.
0: Thank you, Susan.
1: That's, that's how you hold it together. I thought us guys were meant to hold it together. I, I was crying on the way up, so I had no chance anyway. Um, so, f- for me, um, I, I don't know if you believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, but um, that night I became a Christian. Um, there was an incredible thing going on in my heart, and um, God took this angry person um, and changed me literally overnight. I became. Um, angry no more, literally. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's how I can only put it, because um, I, was, I was angry with everyone before that. I was an angry person. I, people would often say, I could just see it in your eyes, it's angry in your eyes, and always looking for trouble, but um, God replaced that with, with incredible love. Um, and and so, when I became a Christian, I, um, that same year, I went on this, this uh, trip called Love Europe, which was I spent a month in... Um, France, with a group of young people, um, literally just evangelising and loving people and caring for people. And then I spent um, the next year, a year in inner city London, with an organisation called Oasis, working with a small church, just doing the same thing, working in this inner city estate, um, loving people. And so um, God really developed a heart, um, not just for lost people, but just for people in general, um, a heart of love. And so so really, all my jobs, I mean, I've been involved in ministry for, for many years now, but all my jobs, I was a tennis coach, for, running my own business for 15 years, and um, even in that time, I was able to, I think, love people um, because God changed that anger um, to hmm. love. And so, and often people would say on court, they'd say to me, are oh, you just a cheap counsellor? That's what they'd say because I'd spend, <laughs> I'd spend half my lesson talking to them about life, you know, and so they'd tell, they'd tell me I'm a cheap <laughs> counsellor, so... Maybe us tennis coaches should charge more. I'm not sure, but... <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, so anyway, my, my words um, are um, forgiven, um, grace again, um, freedom, and song. Because um, God put a song in my heart when I began progressing.
0: Brilliant. Thank you, guys. So I'm guessing after that, no one's going to want to come up and do anything live. So we can all do video, but we all have a story, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you've got a before and and an after, and we'd all like to hear it, because I think there's tremendous encouragement, isn't there, in hearing that? So please, I'd really encourage you, if you'd be willing to share your story, even if it's on video, which is completely fine, just email Robin, and if you're in Hastings, talk to Haratake and Shona, I'd actually love to have some Hastings stories on our screen here at Botany, and vice versa, so that'd be really cool. Before and after, recipients of God's amazing grace should respond with overflowing gratitude. Just as we finish this morning, there's a part of this psalm we haven't touched yet, and I want to touch on it now. That's at the very end. It's the therefore. where in every Thanksgiving psalm, as far as I know in the Bible, there's a before, this is the crisis God saved me from. This is the after, here's what he's done. And then the therefore. Therefore, I vow to do this. I I promise I'm going to do, I will praise you one day, whatever that is. And we find that in Jonah too, in in the last two verses of his prayer, verse 8 and 9. It says this, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from Yahweh. So you notice the wills in verse 9, I will sacrifice I will make good what I have vowed. I will say salvation comes. So this is his vow, his promise. But this is where Jonah's not as actually a great example anymore. He was doing so well in his psalm until these final verses. And I've never ever seen this before because I think I've rushed through this part of his song, his prayer. But this week as I've slowed down and looked at this, I've actually come to realize that Jonah doesn't just make a vow, he makes a comparison in these verses. You notice that? Verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols, verse 9, but I will do this. He's setting up this contrast between pagans who don't know the true God and him who's going to do it right. And I've always thought that the The pagans, the idol worshippers, he's talking about, are just kind of people in general. But then it dawned on me this week, wait a minute, there's two groups of pagans in this book. We're about to meet the second group, the Ninevites, in chapter 3. We've already met the first group, the sailors, in chapter 1. And I think he is comparing himself to the sailors from chapter 1. The reason I think that is because the way this is written as we saw last week, is full of irony. And the irony screams through in this last part of his prayer. What does Jonah promise to do in verse 9? I will sacrifice to you, and I will fulfill my vows. If you've studied the book of Jonah, as I've asked you to do, then the idea of sacrifices and vows should ring a bell. Because that is what the pagan sailors did at the end of chapter 1. You've got Jonah there, 1 verse 16, At this the sailors greatly feared Yahweh and offered sacrifices to Yahweh and made vows to him. That's how the Israelite people worshipped. And as I said last week, that's meant to show us, I think, that these pagan sailors have come to faith in the God of Israel. They've become believers in him. And they show that by doing very Israelite worship of making sacrifices and making vows to God. Now, Jonah comes in the belly of this fish and he makes his vow. God, I'm going to make sacrifices to you and I'm going to make vows to you that I promise I will fulfill. But gee, I'm glad I'm not like those pagan sailors that were on that ship because they'd never do that. See, he didn't know the sailors had done that. He didn't know they'd come to faith. He got tossed overboard in chapter 1, begins to drown, the sea calms and the sailors have come to faith and Jonah doesn't know. And so there's this irony at the end of this what is otherwise a beautiful psalm. There's this note of arrogance from Jonah. God, I am so glad I'm not like those pagan sailors. Because I'm going to make sacrifices to you and I'm going to fulfill vows. Little knowing as he's swimming around in a fish, that's exactly what's happened to those guys. And it just adds an incredibly important note to our big idea. Recipients of God's amazing grace should respond to God with overflowing gratitude and a very deep humility. The problem is that many people who have been redeemed by grace have yet to allow it to filter down into their souls in the way they look at other people. See, what we meant to see at this midpoint of the book is that Jonah has run from God and been saved by grace and is now really grateful that God has saved him. But he's still viewing other people who don't know God with tremendous arrogance and pride. And that's what God still has to break in him. And so the lesson for us today, if we're followers of Jesus and recipients of grace, is that we should follow his example and have tremendous gratitude, overflowing gratitude to God. But we should also step away from his example. And look at those who may not know God yet or who may be different to us with a very deep humility. Because if if you're a recipient of grace, by definition, you've got nothing to boast about at all. So let's finish this up. I am Jonah is the way we're finishing each of these messages. And I've got three reflections for us as we close The first two are good, positive. The third one, not so much. I am Jonah when I acknowledge that it is God's grace alone that saves me. If you're a recipient of God's grace, we need to continually come back and preach the gospel to ourselves and remind ourselves, I still don't deserve this today. I'm still loved and accepted and forgiven by God. And I still don't deserve it. And I still can't earn it and it's still all by grace. And if you're sitting here today listening to this, or watching this on the internet or in Hastings, and you've never actually trusted in Jesus before, this is a great moment for me to tell you that it's utterly by grace. God wants to forgive you and welcome you into his family and give you life forever. And all it takes is acknowledging your brokenness and rebellion against him, and placing your faith in Jesus, who's done it all. And just in this moment, I invite you to do that in the quietness of your heart. Just talk to God and tell Him that. But I am Jonah, and this is when Jonah's at his best. I'm Jonah when I acknowledge that it's God's grace, God's grace alone that saves me. Secondly, I am Jonah when I gratefully and joyfully worship God in response to what He's done. That's what He's doing in the fish, He's having a one man worship session. He's not crying out in desperation. He's thanking God for saving him. And in a minute, the band's gonna come back up and lead us in a couple of closing songs and we've got communion up here and I'm gonna just invite you to to stand and to sing and to give praise to God and to come in your own time and take the communion elements as simply a way of saying thank you to God and worshiping him and responding to him to what he's done in your life. Final reflection, though, is where well, Jonah's not such a good example. But I am Jonah when I arrogantly look down on sinners instead of humbly reflecting his grace. The truth of the matter is, many of us as followers of Jesus look much more like the Pharisee who prayed and said, I'm glad, God, I'm not like those people, more than the tax collector who said, God... Forgive me, a sinner. We're all sinners. We're all broken. And God's grace in our lives should respond not only with tremendous gratitude, but also with a deep humility. God, thank you. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that while you're a God who is altogether holy and who does judge sin, you're also a God, as we've even sung earlier, a God of amazing grace. Thank you for your grace in Robin's life, changing this angry young man and filling him with love. Thank you for your grace in Susan's life, taking this woman, young woman from a Buddhist family and filling her with love for that family. Thank you for your grace in my life, changing a judgmental arrogant person into one that is blown away by your grace thank you Lord for every before and every after today we just want to respond to you say thank you we want to give you the glory you deserve we pray you'd cultivate in us a deep humility as recipients of grace in Jesus name Amen